We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning, everybody. Sorry to interrupt all this wonderful conversation and fellowship. We're glad that you're here this morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. Let's turn our Bibles, please, to Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies for they are deceptive food. Just write in your margin there, Daniel. Remember Daniel, chapter 1? He was not going to give in to the unkosher food that the king of Babylon was offering but asked to maintain his uh, convictions and he did that successfully. Chapter 23 of the Proverbs, verse 4. Do not overwork to be rich because of your own understanding. Cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a miser nor desire his delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. The morsel you have eaten, you'll vomit up and waste your pleasant words. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Do not remove the ancient landmark, nor enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is mighty. He will plead their cause against you. This is one of those things that I think of sometimes. You know, if you want to disobey God, I guess go ahead, but just be aware of the consequences of that, by which I mean don't go ahead. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you want to take your chances with God? You know, shift the landmark over so you can get another acre of land or, you know, disobey your parents even though you know you're not supposed to or whatever. You know, don't really be my guest, but you know, go ahead and give it a try and see how it works out. And I'll tell you, it's not going to work out well at all. So please be careful before God. Apply, verse 12, apply your heart to instruction and your ears to words of knowledge. Very important. Really apply yourself, especially like when you're hearing the word of God. Don't just shut off your ears, okay? Don't turn down the volume. Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. I would rather you translate the word strike. You shall strike him with the rod and deliver his soul from hell. Why is that? Because the youngster learns that there is punishment for sin. And they need to learn that early so that they develop in them that proper moral sense of right and wrong. Because there is punishment for sin. It doesn't just disappear or go away or you can't just wish it out of uh, existence. Verse 15, my son, if your heart is wise, my heart will rejoice. Indeed, I myself, how true for a father and a mother, if your heart is wise, our hearts will rejoice. Yes, my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak right things. You know, the, the scripture says that a man has a kind of a joy or satisfaction at the answer of his mouth. When he's able to give a wise answer in a a difficult circumstance, say, and he can say, God, thank you for giving me that wisdom to be able to say that. Maybe wisdom accumulated over years. Thank you. That's very satisfying. But also it's satisfying when you're able to share that wisdom with others, young people, and you're able to hear their answer for a matter. And you say, that's it. That a boy. You know, go for it. Keep living for the Lord. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. For surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. 
Do not mix with wine bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Have you ever heard of the buy and hold strategy in investing? Truth is always rated a buy. Some of you know the language that I'm talking about. It's always rated a buy and a hold. Buy it and hold on to it. Verse 24, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who begets a wise child will delight in him. Let your father and your mother be glad, and let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your heart, and let your eyes observe my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit, and a seductress is a narrow well. She also lies in wait as for a victim, and increases the unfaithful among men. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will mutter, will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? Isn't that so sad? Uh, and that's a, a very good warning for us to just stay right away from alcoholic beverages, to be sure. Uh, sometime I should have you listen to the testimony and preaching of uh, Pastor uh, Mike Harding on that subject. He has a great series on, on that, a, a short series I think it is, on alcohol and why the abstinence position is, uh, is the best. In fact, how did he title that message? Um, I can't think of it. It might be that he, it, he titled it the, the Grapes of Wrath or something like that. <laughs> yeah, so very, uh, very well, well put for sure. If you would turn your Bibles to Genesis again today, Genesis and the third chapter. We just dipped our toes into this last time because I had to finish uh, working in chapter one with you. <clears throat> Today we're talking about the beginning of sin and sin entering the world and death through sin. We began, well, we went through chapter 2 and then we looked in the beginning of chapter 3 at the entrance of sin into the world and really just ask ourselves kind of an introductory question, where did sin come from? And we said certainly it did not originate with God, although you may have some philosophical trouble with that question, it's scripturally clear that it did not come from God. You might ask, well, how can God create a world from nothing and then a few days later sin enters it and it not be somehow connected to him? Well, we never said that it had no connection. He created the people with the innocence uh, moral agency to choose whether they would live for God or not. He created the angels with a similar moral agency, so we could say, well, you know, it's God's fault for making us able to choose. Hmm, that doesn't sound quite right, does it? Because it's not right. It's not God's fault. Sin did not originate firstly in humans either, because we read and, and studied a little bit about Satan and how sin was found or iniquity was found in him, and so we concluded that sin originated with Satan. He was the first one. He drew away a number of angels after him and then entered into the human uh, situation, not by a human incarnation, but by an animal incarnation. <laughs> Think about that. The Lord Jesus comes in the fullness of time, in the fullness of perfect humanity. Satan comes in a snake. What a, what a difference. What a contrast in 
in that. And you can see that stuff today, friends. If your eyes are looking, you see uh, you know, the way people portray themselves and uh, the, the dress and the lighting and the this and the that, and you see demonic and kind of not demonic things, if I can say it that way, icons and, and, and how they portray themselves. But we saw with this that in the face of the problem of evil and suffering in the world, the origination of sin in the world has a supernatural origin. That's why it's somewhat difficult for us to explain. You can't get down to the you know, atomic particles and the physics of it, and you can't get down to you know, the, the natural laws that figure out, okay, where did sin come from? Why did Adam and Eve choose so badly? Why did this come into the world? And wouldn't it have been nicer if it hadn't? Well, yes, but God permitted it for his good reasons and purposes, and uh, we will understand a little bit better by and by why that is. We uh, spoke about some of the um, rationalizations that people express or think of when it comes to explaining sin, the, the theodicies they're called, the different ways of explaining how God can be just and allow evil in the world. Um, so... And, and then also, just by way of review, we just reminded ourselves that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the phrase, the angel of light, is used to refer not to a good angel, but to the bad angel, to Satan himself. And uh, he's a clever creature for which mere humans are no match. He prowls around not only like an angel of light, but also a roaring lion, uh, one of our young people delightfully asked a question about where Satan is. Was that the question, or what's he doing? And I, I was able to share with this young lad that there are some Christians who believe Satan is bound today, but that is incorrect. It's not correct because the Scripture tells us, well, it shows us in Job. He's moving about looking for some trouble to cause. And... Uh, Second Peter, or First Peter, he's roaring like a lion, seeking people to devour. All of those portions, we see his work in the world. Um, I mean, if, he is, if he's bound, he's doing a, a really good job from prison directing the uh, evil activities in the world. And so uh, we don't believe that he's bound. He's, he's out roaming around. He will be bound during the millennial kingdom. We're not in that right now, like the amillennialist says. We're not in that kingdom right now. You know, I was thinking, uh, I don't know where this thought came to me. I, probably most of the thoughts I have are derivations of things that I've heard or other smarter people have told me. But this thought came to mind, you know, this kind of idea that some people have in the, not the amillennial camp, but the postmillennial camp, that, you know, we're going to do enough work in the world to bring about the kingdom and then Christ will return. And I said to myself, do you really believe in total depravity? You know, are you, a, are you a proper Reformed theologian who believes in total depravity if you say that we're going to make the world a better place and then Christ will return? We can't even fix our own lives. We need Christ to do that. The coming of Christ in our life is pre-us willing it. He's, he's drawn us to himself. He's had to work. He's had to illuminate. He's had to give us eyes to see. He's had to deliver us the gospel. If we can't get ourselves straightened out. Don't kid yourselves that we're going to suddenly somehow straighten out the world. But the argument from lesser to greater, the lesser we cannot do, the greater we certainly cannot do. Well, um, concluding from last time, we said that we have to resist the devil. We have to resist him in, in his ways. He doesn't come to us in you know open, uh, you know, kind of, horns and pitchfork kind of form, you know, we're standing on our shoulder and we can look over and see him there whispering things into our... In fact, he doesn't need to whisper anything into our ears because our flesh does that for us, so we don't give him more credit than he's due, but of the evil world systems and the things that he's doing, I see his hand all over the place. I mean, you look at the, the headlong rush into sexual immorality in the world, um, and, and uh, one of the evidences of that is the people clamoring for the opportunity to kill unborn children, wanting to vote for it on the ballot in the state of Michigan. How dark 
can your heart be, my friend? How dark can you be if you think that we should be voting on that? That's not a matter of voting. It's a matter of protecting the lives of unborn children. Darkness has fallen over the earth, and uh, we best be about shining our little lights wherever we can. You might think you have just a little pencil flashlight, but it's a whole lot better than nothing out in that dark world. So shine that light, my friends. Be a light in the world. Don't put your light under a basket because nobody's going to be able to see it, and those people desperately need to see it. Now we look then into the fall into sin, verses 1 through 6 in chapter 3. And I'll just make this comment uh, at the heading of the message, the new part here. The fall into sin, which has affected so many people so desperately with suffering and with evil, is recounted in the space of six verses in our scripture. The other 75% of the chapter deals with the consequences of sin. And I saw in my own study that this was emblematic of what sin is. Sin takes a moment. It promises pleasure, but that pleasure doesn't last very long. And the consequences are far greater than that momentary pleasure. You remember that when you're tempted to sin. The guilt, the conscience that bothers you, the impact that you have on other people, Yeah, collateral damage. It's natural because that's what sin does. I mean, think of the sin of Adam and Eve. The sin of Adam was propagated to the whole race for all time. One disobedience became the cause of billions of deaths and untold human suffering. Untold human suffering. Focusing on all of this evil stuff is is depressing, I'm sure, but alas, we need to know it so that we can understand the gospel and what God delivers us from and how he delivers us from evil and from the devil. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, now we've it's kind of quickly gone over what's happened here in the background, but He said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. The serpent here is said to be cunning. Uh, The serpent is a snake. More so than other land animals, he was cunning. And the combination of the snake and the indwelling handler of that snake made it very clever or shrewd or crafty. Satan chose to indwell it and thus made it unusual among all the other snakes that might have been in existence on the planet at that time. But God chose to punish all of that kind because of this transgression that was done through it. Now, did Satan like the snake because it was already a perfect beast to display Satan's character? Kind of the question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did we, do we hate snakes because they're hateful to begin with, or did we, do we not like snakes because uh, Satan chose to indwell that one? Uh, do we associate the serpent with Satan because Satan chose the serpent, and that is why snakes get a bad reputation? Of course, I know there's some people out there like, oh, I love snakes. You know, that's wonderful. You just go ahead and pet, pet your pet snake and all you want and feed it, feed it a mouse and whatever else, and... Uh, that's, that's all fine for you, not for me. But um, the answer as to whether the, the, you know, the snake was inherently that way or, uh, or Satan indwelled it, it's not really huge in the big picture. Although I'll say when God created everything, he declared it what? Very good. Tov me'od, it was exceedingly good. So um, 
not exactly sure. It may be that the snake after this has become more odious to, to uh, humanity in general. But Satan indwelt this reptile, and he talked through it. Now, the passage here shows that Satan used several techniques. So what I'm doing here now is I'm lifting out these techniques, and I want to sh- just to call them to your attention. They're not going to be in strict order of the verses here. I mean, I'll give them in order that, th- that I saw them in the text, but I have to kind of skip over some of the things that the woman said in order with him in order to get these out in order. I've got uh, five of them. Number one, Satan used the technique of attacking the woman while she was alone. It, it's apparent to me that she was initially by herself. Not at the end, of course, because it says that he, she gave to her husband with her this. But somehow she was interacting with this serpent alone and not um, consulting with Adam. You know, Adam, what do you think about this talking snake over here? You would hope that together they might have been able to uh, fend off the attack. That's an important point I want to come back to. Secondly, Satan used a mental attack, not a physical one. Isn't that often the case? Isn't that almost always the case? The, the bad thoughts, the lust conceives, and it brings forth sin, and sin with his full grown brings forth death, James chapter 1. He used a mental attack. You have got to guard the mind. Thirdly, he sowed doubt, okay? Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You shall not eat of every tree of the garden, he asks. But God did not say that. In fact, he said, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, just with one exception. But the question gets the woman to thinking that there is a limitation upon her that somehow might be bad. You know, you can have anything you want, just not the cookies in that cookie jar. Why are we so dumb? Then we got to have the ones in the cookie jar. Number four, then besides creating doubt, he outright lied and denied God's word. Verse four records him saying, you will not surely die. But God said in chapter two, verse 17, let's just look at it carefully. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan says, you will not die. God says, you will die. How is it that he can move so quickly from doubt to outright denial and uh, contravening the word of God, confidently stating that the opposite was true of what God said? Number five. He gave an alternate explanation, which was another lie. Instead of dying, you've got to get that idea of dying out of your head. You don't want to deal with dying, Satan is cleverly saying. So he says the idea is that God himself knows that when you eat, you will understand more and you'll be like God because you will know good and evil. You know, instead of dying, you're going to get something good out of this. Somehow God is lying to you. But that's clearly not the case, what Satan said. How do we know? Look at the results. Look at the results. There's no what-ifs or hypotheticals about it. We can see exactly what happened. Are we like God? Not in the way that was promised. Do we know good and evil like God does, innocently, as matters of fact rather than personal behavior? No, not there either. Eve should have understood that. She was thrown off center with the doubting question and then, in just a few words, got way off into the weeds with the evil one guiding her thinking. So, remember these techniques. He attacked while she was alone initially. He used a mental attack. He sowed doubt. He outright lied. And he gave an alternate explanation. The playbook you know, is the same today. There's nothing different. Get them while they're vulnerable. Alone. Start in the mind. 
cast doubt, lie by saying the opposite of God's word, and, and then give false explanations. Our sinful nature, which is just like Satan, though not directly controlled by him, does the same thing. I want you to watch out for these things. My friends, there are whole institutions, public education, colleges, that in some, not all, but in some of the classrooms are doing this as part of the curriculum. They're based on uh, opposite things than what God's Word says, and they promote those as alternate explanations. They, they deny what God has said. They give an alternate explanation for what God has said, and people pay for this. Stop and think before you swallow some idea or doctrine. The world says people are basically good. God's Word says there is none good. See that? It's, a, it's, a, it's an alluring thing. People are basically good people. I mean, look at all the good that people do. Isn't it true? Ecclesiastes 7.20, is not a just man on the earth who does right and does not sin. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They've denied God. Romans 3.12, not all worldly philosophies boil down so easily to a direct opposite, but many do. Particularly if you know your Bible well, you'll look at that philosophy and say, now what are they saying? Oh, whoops. That's like saying, God didn't say you would surely die, but actually God did say that you would surely die. Others require a bit of thinking to simmer them down to their essence or boil them down. You know, you know the statement today, love is love. Besides being logically a tautology, it, makes, it says nothing. And that, people actually like doing that. They like to say something that actually says nothing. Put a bunch of words out there that have no meaning. They circle back to themselves, and that's like the shortest version of that. Love is love. No, God is love. Not love is love. God is love. The scriptures are very clear about this. Uh, how would you address other similar worldly ideals? Like, here's one. Religion is the cause of the world's problems. Well, false religion, maybe, but not true Christ-following religion. Are there others? Maybe you'd like to discuss some of them sometime. Today, I was speaking with a pastor friend of mine, and he said he knows some folks dear to him who are still listening to the serpent to this day. They're still listening to the serpent. People are listening to the serpent all the time in our day. Are you? To Satan's initial sentence, a question, the woman answered more or less correctly. She recounted how uh, she and her husband had freedom to eat of every tree in the garden except for one, the one in the middle of the garden. Now, actually, they're, apparently the, both the tree of life and the knowledge of good and evil, those two trees were both in the midst of the garden because that's what uh, the, the Bible says in chapters 1 and 2. Um, maybe they were set side by side next to one another as an emblem of two ways to live. You go this way or you go this way, two choices to make. But it was the latter tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Eve knew was forbidden to them. Now she said this also, nor shall you touch it. Now sometimes interpreters raise criticism against Eve because she supposedly added to God's word. Now that may be, but I will give a charitable interpretation of this, that she was told by her husband to just stay away from it, don't touch it, to put a little distance between themselves and the temptation. If it was deadly to the eating, why would you want to touch it? Don't touch that unclean thing. Now, I don't believe myself that Eve's sin consisted in her adding to God's word. Adding a little distance between yourself and the sin-causing agent is not a sin. Her sin was elsewhere. She understood, too, it says, the penalty for disobedience, lest you die. So Eve saw then that the tree was, after Satan went through his machinations with her mind, saw that the tree was good for food, it was desirable to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise. Now is when the woman fell into sin. 
by entertaining doubt about God's goodness and about his word. God's withheld everything from you, or at least something that you want, you might want. Before eating the fruit, she had already fallen to this sin in her mind. The act was just the culmination. The act of taking and eating was just the culmination of that sin that was in her heart. So there, there is the kind of the center point of that sin, doubting God's word and uh, believing the opposite of it, and then, of course, disobeying, in fact, by taking and doing the forbidden thing. She convinced her husband somehow to eat, and he did so. Okay? Now, I'm not going to say a whole lot about this except this because I found this or heard this uh, belief, which I think is an error that needs to be mentioned. Please do not characterize Adam's act as one of mercy toward his wife. Oh, it was because he loved her so much that he ate the forbidden fruit and sacrificed himself so he would suffer the same fate that she did. It sounds like something, that to me sounds like something Satan would say. If it's wrapped in love, it's okay. Go ahead and do it. Nonsense. Nonsense. We don't believe that sappy stuff is found in God's word. We have an objective responsibility toward God, not an emotionally driven responsibility toward our loved ones. Adam's behavior was an act of sin, not an act of love. It was disobedience to God. And furthermore, I'll attack the argument directly at its core. It was not merciful for him to sin with her. He could not help her effectively by sinning. The only way you can effectively help someone else is by not sinning. The only way you can be effective is if you're in the pure state here. It's not merciful either for his sin, for him to sin to the race of billions of souls that came after him. As a sinner, he was no help. He was no help at all. So don't go down that road. Uh, now, also notice, uh, I think it's in um, later in my notes here, but in 1 Timothy it tells us that Eve was deceived. But Adam was not deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he chose regardless. Now, some principles that I draw from this for you, for us, Uh, Check with your spouse first before making any significant decisions. Do not agree if your spouse invites you to sin. Do not isolate yourself. Fill your mind with God's word so you can fight off Satan's attempts through the world and the flesh to get you to fall. And be skeptical of ideas that come your way until you can prove them in the Word of God. In Romans 5.12, Paul pins the blame for sin in the human race, not on Eve, but on Adam. Okay? Somebody had to do, do the deed first, and that was Eve. But God designed that despite that, because Adam was the head of the race, the federal head of the race, the representative of the race, that he was the one upon whom would be blamed the fall of the whole of humanity into sin. He was assigned by God that representative status. The serpent deceived Eve. Paul said, I I hope that you're not being deceived like the serpent deceived Eve, 2 Corinthians 11. We mentioned 1 Timothy 2 already. Adam was not. He He sinned willfully, and he receives the full brunt of the blame for sin in the human race. Now, then the consequences of sin. We mentioned already the consequences take up 75% of the text in the chapter. And in fact, the rest of world history testifies to its devastating consequence. Number one consequence is in verse number seven. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were uh, naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So immediately they experienced shame. They saw themselves differently as without clothing. They tried to cover their shame with some hastily prepared and undoubtedly ill-fitting coverings, ill-functioning coverings in their haste to try to cover themselves. Very, very pitiful scene. 
just between a, a, a perfect, formerly perfect man and his perfect wife in their love and intimate relationship with one another. Now they're ashamed to be seen unclothed together by themselves in their special garden. What a sad testimony. Secondly, broken fellowship with God. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called, uh, Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I said, I, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Well, this was a really disappointing revelation, although, of course, God already knew. But he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? Broken fellowship with God. So instead of warmly welcoming God into the garden again, as apparently was happening day by day, they went and hid themselves. You know, they, they hid in their room when Dad came home because they didn't want to see Dad, and uh, they knew what was coming. God knew very well where Adam was, but the question, where are you, served as a diagnostic for Adam's benefit, not for God's benefit. And Adam gave the answer. He was afraid because he didn't have any clothes. He did not have that fear one day ago, but now he did. And then God asked him how he knew he was naked. Did somebody tell him, some angel or something? Or did you eat from the forbidden tree? Adam could see plainly, sorry, plainly see before how he looked, and it had never dawned on him that there was a better state for him to be in. In other words, with clothing on. It never occurred to him. But because of their pure innocence before, it was not necessary and thus did not come into his mind. Now, after his fall into sin, he knew there was another state and he found it intolerable to be naked with anyone else looking. His shame was exposed. We went over that whole business of clothing a couple of weeks ago and about the shame and so on. Then the blame shifting begins, you know, uh, well, the woman that you gave to be with me, she, made, she did it, she made me do it. The woman offered another weak excuse by blaming the serpent for deceiving her, but both of them did say, I ate. They did admit their guilt. God did not bother to ask the serpent anything because he already knew the snake indwelt by Satan was the end of the blame line. And so God then pours out upon humanity the promised curse that would come. In fact, not only on humanity, but on other parts of the creation as well. First on the serpent. And the serpent curse here has two parts to it. First is the animal itself, and second is the indweller of that animal. God cursed the animal more than all the land animals. The rest of the animals were cursed as well. Very sadly, unfortunately, animals die today because of the sin of Adam and Eve. The entry of sin in the world dirtied the whole thing under Adam's charge. And although we might not understand this, God in his ultimate and infinite wisdom saw fit that this was the way things would be. Romans 8.20, he subjected the world to this bondage of corruption, not willingly on the part of the animal creation. Remember what Paul says there? Not willingly, but that's what happened. The snake family then was consigned to dwell on the ground. On your belly you shall go, middle of verse 14, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. This cursed condition is more than that of all the cattle. And I, I don't know this for sure, but I wonder if the little snake reptile might have had some legs on him before and God supernaturally changed him so that he had to slither around on his belly in the dust. And uh, what does it say? Did I miss one part here? Oh, yeah, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. One of the interesting things that I never noticed before was what happens to the snake later on in world history. Uh, all the way f forward to the millennial kingdom. And you know in the millennial kingdom that there's going to be the lion laying down with the uh, lamb and all of that sort of stuff. There is a note about uh, a young child playing by the cobra's 
whole and not being harmed. But listen to this, Isaiah 65, verse number 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. Still, in the millennial kingdom, the snake is going to be eating the dust because he represents that odious impact of sin on the human race. Now, the serpent was the vehicle of Satan. So in verse 15, God turns his attention to Satan himself, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the seed of the woman is the Messiah. Notice it's singular here, and it's he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So it's not a a large number of offspring, although we know that and, and as Christians, we are in Christ, we are in the seed, but we are not the seed in this context. And so the Bible tells us that the seed will crush the serpent, but he will receive a non uh, a life-ending blow, if you will, to the heel, although we, we know it ended his life, but he rose again from the dead. The first blow was fatal, the second was not ultimately fatal. So this verse 15 is known as the first gospel. The first gospel. There's a promise here that somehow from the woman is going to come a seed who will take care of this serpent once and for all. And for that, we give God thanks. God says to the Roman Christians in chapter 16, God will crush Satan under your feet shortly. So yes, there's persecution now, but that persecution will come to an end. Second, there's the curse on the woman. Verse 16 the scripture says to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Uh, just imagine this hypothetical if childbearing was not at all difficult. If it were not at all difficult, no infant mortality, no morning sickness, no pain in childbearing, wouldn't that be wonderful? That's not the world we live in, is it? The pain is a cross-generational reminder of the sin of Eve bringing sin into the race. 1 Timothy 2.15 talks about this, that this is one of the reasons why God gives the headship to the male. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.15 says the woman will be saved in childbearing. And there's some question there about what it means to be saved. I've taken that to, be, to mean that she's delivered from the curse uh, when she bears and then raises children in a godly way, but not spiritually saved or born again. That's not the kind of save that it's talking about. By this means, by bearing and raising a godly seed, she is lessening the effect of bringing another sinful person into the world. Just imagine if parents provided no moral guidance, Christian parents, no moral guidance to their children. They just keep bearing children and you know, popping them out into the world and letting them go their own way. No, the way that you reduce the effect of sin, moms, is by raising those kids to be righteous. Teach them the ways of God, as Timothy was taught by his grandmother and his mother. Um, that's how we handle that. Then verse, uh, also in verse 16, it says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Uh, this is um, a little bit of an enigmatic passage, but I think uh, if we go to Genesis 4-7, we can see what's going on here. Um, this is a different context. It's uh, about Cain and God speaking to him, if you, uh, uh, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. There's that word desire again, and it's a ruling kind of word. It's a, a word which refers to uh, the relationship of headship between a man and his wife. Being ruled over by the husband is God's assignment for the wife. Before the fall, this was not a problem at all because everything would be entirely loving and harmonious. Now, however, it was going to be a struggle. Women want to run the home, but God has designed the man to do so. The husband becomes exasperated when she attempts to usurp that God-assigned role. And all I can say is God help us. That's what we need, God's help in living in the way that he wants us to. But I can tell you by the scriptures and experience that if you commit yourselves, both husband and wife, 
we're going to live the way God wants us to live, we're going to arrange our home affairs like he wants us to, then you will have joy and delight. And then we have the curse on the man, verses 17 to 19. Uh, You have several elements to this. He receives the brunt of the punishment because he was responsible as the representative of the race. His failure was bigger than just himself. A good principle, by the way, your sin is bigger than yourself. Your sin is more than just you. It affects more than just yourself. First of all, the ground is cursed because of Adam. It will take difficult work and a battle will ensue. Man versus nature. Uh, Thorns and thistles, it will grow. Pests will come and eat up your crops and all the rest of it. Secondly, it will be laborious to eke out a living from the ground with the weeds and the drought and the lack of nutrients and all of that. And thirdly, he says to Adam, you will die and you will return to the earth from where you were taken. From dust to dust. Came from dust and to dust you shall return. So, God's promise, the day you eat of it, you will surely die, is thus implemented, immediate spiritual death, eventual physical death. And then two more items. Uh, One is clothing here at the end of chapter 3. Adam uh, named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam had that privilege to give her a name. God permitted that, assigned him that. And then for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, let's just pause for a moment on that. God made appropriate coverings for them, functional coverings that covered the necessaries for them. Now, many have noted that these uh, skins came from animals that God must have killed for the purpose of making the, the clothing. And this foreshadows sacrifice. But no great theology can be derived from this text on sacrifice because the It's otherwise silent. But what was the point of the coverings? People say covering, covering, kafar, uh, atonement. No, don't go there just yet. This was to cover their shame, their uncoveredness. Clothing does not atone. Clothing does not atone, okay? The blood of Christ atones. Blood of bulls and goats doesn't even atone. Okay, it cannot take away sin. It's only a temporary interest-only payment, if you will, on sin. And then finally, verses 22 to 24, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Remember, I said, have we really become like God, knowing good and evil, from an innocent perspective? No. But we have, in some way, gotten to know this good and evil by experience, by behavior. And God says, look, it's intolerable for me to consider allowing people to live in that state forever. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So instead of having fellowship with God, Adam is driven out. You're gone from this place of perfect fellowship and perfect provision. You're banished from accessing the tree of life, which if they had continued to eat, they would continue to live in this sin-cursed state. And so that actually is an act of God's mercy to keep us from living forever. Can you imagine living forever and ever and ever and ever in the presence and struggle and difficulty of sin and the curse and tears and pain and suffering forever? That'd be a drag. By the end of our lives, many of us reach the state when we say this is a drag, just the 70 or 80 or 90 years that we live. Enough. It's time for us to go. So, now what happened to the garden? I believe that it was wiped out certainly by, at the latest, by the flood. Later in Genesis, we'll see in chapter 6 through 9. I believe it was wiped out there, if not before. It's no longer anywhere to be found on the earth. You know, don't go thinking you're going to hunt around in the jungles and Mesopotamia or Africa and find, oh, I found it, you know, like the Holy Grail or something. It's not there. 
but God prevented people from going there during the time that it still stood. The man and woman knew good and evil in a similar but much poorer way than God does. They know it now by experience. And what comes with the experience of good and evil? The pain of good and evil. They knew that too, and not how Satan promised to them. This was the beginning of sin and evil in the world. God planned for it all, of course, in advance by the redemption of Christ. And anyone who turns away from their sin and trusts in Christ, seeking his pardon, will be delivered from sin and its curse. And that deliverance will take, well, it begins immediately, doesn't it? Sin's dominion is broken, and we're able to live for Christ, but yet we still have the presence of sin, and God works that out of us as he sanctifies us and then brings us into glorification. So we will be delivered from sin and the curse. And you can experience that today if you just call unto Christ, who paid the penalty that Adam incurred. And he paid it for all of humanity on that cross. May God be praised. Father in heaven, thank you for the teaching of the word that shows us why our condition is as it is in this world. Sin is not an evolved trait. It is a trait that supernaturally entered the world through Satan's influence on humans who chose using their moral agency and they chose poorly, very poorly. Lord, deliver us, I pray, from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. Help us to live for Christ. And if we haven't yet begun on that journey, help us to come to him the first time and say, God, please, I'm a sinner. I confess. I acknowledge Christ died for my sins and rose again. I call upon him to save me from my sin and experience that great grace, that loving grace, and that help from the Almighty God. In Jesus' name, amen.